This episode is brought to you by Trulian. Trulian is AI-powered accounting software that is modernizing accounting. Trulian helps CFOs, controllers, and auditors collaborate in a unified platform. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, Trulian, later in the episode. Uh, it's a big question. Because I'm not an investor, I'll have to speak my best on behalf. There's a Seeking Alpha article. You know, now, see, Seeking Alpha Kit is a, is a syndicated publication, but one of the popular writers wrote, the only purpose of the new lease accounting standard is to create more works for accountants. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Earmark Accounting Podcast. I am your host, Blake Oliver, CPA, lifelong learner. And my guest today is Isaac Heller, co-founder and CEO at Trulian. Isaac, great to have you on the show. Great to be here, Blake. Good to see you. And I love what you're doing in the podcasting world. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for sponsoring this episode. I'm really eager to learn about your background. I'm eager to learn about Trulian. I understand you guys are doing some really interesting stuff with artificial intelligence, new accounting standards, lease accounting. Give me the give me the backstory or the elevator pitch, maybe for Trulian. What what is it to the uninitiated? Sure. Well, well, I mean, Trulian is financial accounting technology. Uh, just by way of background, uh, I have a I have a business and finance background, and I'll admit at the beginning I'm not a full CPA. I started my my career in early stage companies, moved to a pre-IPO technology company in Dallas, Texas. I was moonlighting with a with an MBA degree at night at the University of Texas in Dallas. And I got really into GAP and IFRS through my my courses and some amazing teachers. My real world application was that pre-IPO company and going through what's called revenue recognition, which at the time was a new GAP ASC 606 standard. That was interesting. At that company, I also ended up doing product management for a revenue accounting product in the airline industry. So if you ever want to nerd out around co-chairs and interlines, you know, I'm game. And then serendipitously, I had moved to New York and started working for a real estate technology company having nothing to do with accounting, but that was in the crosshairs of the lease accounting standard, which was another on balance sheet activity like revenue recognition. So within a few years, my love of GAP and IFRS from a textbook uh, turned into a real life hair pulling PDF and Excel scavenger hunt, let's call it. Living in New York with my wife, kid at the time, and uh, we decided to start Trulian, which would essentially do cool things like, you know, read PDFs and Excel and unstructured data inherently and then help with the accounting workflow, including journal entries and disclosures. And Trulian is, is what it is today, but that's, that's how it all started. And you just raised a Series A in February, is that right? $15 million? Yeah, $15 million, Series A. We're super excited about it. And we're also very excited about the investors who led it. So one is uh, Michael Eisenberg, general partner at Aleph, who is a very, very well-known early stage investor, famously for companies like Lemonade and Melio, which is a big uh, accounting company these days, infamously for WeWork, but he's a fantastic investor. Also co-led by Third Point Ventures, which uh, Rob Schwartz leads that, and also Dan Loeb, who's a, a famous name in the financial reporting world. So we've we've got some amazing people behind us that are suddenly interesting in suddenly interested in accounting. So that's that's a funny way to get to accounting standards is you were an MBA, you were working is in different companies that were dealing with these different accounting standards. The first revenue recognition then lease accounting. So you got a firsthand experience of just how difficult it can be to comply with many of these standards. And I myself got into that when I was working at a Flowcast as a product marketer, we were selling to corporate controllers. And this was, you know, five years ago. And it was all revenue recognition, lease accounting, 
least kind of kept getting delayed, right? We're finally getting, is it, the, the actual standard is, is happening now, right? Like, oh, it's, have to it's happening. It's okay. happening. So it was like every controller or CFO is just like thing in the back of their mind, just gnawing at the back of their head, right? Like not, not what they <laughs> want to be focusing on. For those of us who are in the small business world and don't have to deal with these accounting standards changes, can you describe how difficult it is? Like, what was it like having to adopt the new revenue recognition standard? Or what was it like having to deal with the, the lease accounting? What is entailed in, in that? Yeah. First of all, like small, medium-sized businesses, technically, if they want to be GAP compliant or IFRS compliant, uh, do have to comply with these standards. So if you have one lease, it may not be difficult, but you still need to represent that on the balance sheet. And if you have a, a handful of customers, but you have performance obligations, meaning you have to actually deliver the product or service that they're paying you for, technically you can only recognize your revenue once that uh, deliverable is performed. So at scale, when you're working at a company like where I work, Sabre, that has hundreds of airlines and thousands of projects ongoing, you need to be moving from what I call the transactional view of accounting, which is, hey, you paid me a dollar, so I just got a dollar, to the theoretical view of accounting, which is you paid me a dollar, but I'm only 50% complete with the project and I can only recognize 50% of the revenue. So that's, that's like the theoretical side. Same with lease accounting. I used to just pay a thousand bucks a month for my lease. And now I need to go look at the term of that lease contract and the options or clauses that I could theoretically exercise. And I need to come up with a useful life. And then I need to come up with an incremental borrowing rate and convert that into a right of use asset and liability. It's almost like I have to treat it like debt which might make sense to, to some people, right? Cause you did sign a contract. <laughs> and so it's not like, you know, you're on the hook for a thousand dollars cause it's that, well, no, you're on the hook for $12,000 times five years or whatever it is. So that's revenue recognition. That's lease accounting standard. I go back to, you know, my days in the MBA and it starts like this. I believe in this stuff. Like I, you know, I'm from Texas. So I, I was in the Enron world and socks and, and I, and I lived through this and I believe in the effort of moving towards more transparent and accurate financial reporting. It actually does make sense to put more on the balance sheet. It actually does make sense to force a SaaS company to admit that there might be a cancellation clause in the first, you know, year of that contract. So you can't really hundred percent be ensured that three years of that revenue, you know, will be collected. So that's the first thing is like, I believe in this stuff. I believe it's leading towards a more transparent world. And I got enthusiastic about that. So then once you go into the, let's call it the corporate world or the business world, and you go back to like your Flowcast experience where you have controllers that are, you know, banging their heads or CFOs that are rolling their eyes because they don't look at it as a value proposition. And then you have like ERPs and systems that actually don't do this accounting. So you have to do it outside. That's when you start to um, relate to the paint. So small, medium-sized businesses, you know, they can fly under the radar for now. So you actually think that these accounting standards improve financial reporting? Because, well, let me just explain an, a situation from my experience in software with the new revenue recognition standard. Like when we were at, at Flowcast, we, we, we like to mock it. Because uh, one, of the, one of the things that we did as part of our company was uh, we had a setup team, a team that would, for a fee, come in and set up Flowcast. And under the new revenue recognition standard, well, previous to the revenue recognition standard, ASC 606, we would expense all of our salaries in that team, and we would recognize the revenue for that service in like the month or two months in which we performed the service to set up the software. But under ASC 606, we now had to estimate the life of that customer and defer the software implementation service fee over the life of that customer. And to us, it didn't make sense because here we are, all of our costs are in August and September, for instance, when we did the setup, but now we're having to defer the revenue across months or even years. 
And the weird thing that happened was if a customer churned, we would then accelerate the recognition of all of that revenue in the month that they churned, which actually created a strange like increase in revenue. So losing a customer actually led to an improvement in financial results on a gap basis. And I never understood how the people who make up these standards could come up with something that mismatches income and expense. Isn't the entire point to match income and expense in the period in the same period? Like that's what that's why we do accounting. Yeah, no, and, and you're absolutely right. And that's a that's a situation that we've run into as well. Oh, we haven't we haven't had a churn customer, but in a previous life, we absolutely did. Look, I would think of it, you know, I would I would visualize one of those graphs with the X and the Y axis, and it just looks like a stair step that goes up. And accounting is trying to get that stair step kind of aligned on a curve where there's a little bit right and a little bit wrong, but for the most part, things are right. It's never going to be a beautiful, smooth curve where you're hitting all the, the the bumps and the ups and downs. But overall, yes, I think that your sales costs, right? That's an acquisition cost to get a contract. And if you start to play with that, right, and you get into reseller engagements or rebates, you can really manipulate the cost of acquiring a contract in a, in a substantial way. So there are some like little residual issues along the way. And by the way, we could, we could spend another podcast about talking how gaps imperfect. My solution or, or, or the way I, I described it is like this, you know, gap and I for us, FASB, ISB make a best effort to look at issues that are happening and sort of correct them in the future. I mean, if you think about Lisa County, probably maybe started with two guys sitting on a plane and said, wait a minute, this plane isn't on the books. You know, these guys are leasing the plane, but you know, Southwest airlines has a hundred dollar liability that, that, that just doesn't make sense, you know? So it started in some really good theoretical place. And then of course, regulations and standards take a little while to iron out the kinks and, and make a lot of people happy. And so my big play and probably what Flowcast would say in a lot of these other companies that are popping up is technology becomes the great equalizer. So if you can have technology that can manage that data effectively, then you can be compliant with a revenue recognition standard, which is important because you got everyone to agree. That's like a big deal. We're in America in 2022. People still follow and believe in gaps. So that's a big deal. We have to respect that. But if you do have the data clean, then to your point, you could run scenario analysis on uh, the different ways that a customer could life could end, or right. you could have a probability score around churn that makes that revenue a little bit more accurate, but it all comes down to like technologies filling that gap. So it sounds like the revenue recognition standard, at least that, that one change was predicated by or caused by companies manipulating their revenue under the old standard. It was considered to be too, too much discretion that people had. So, so FASB comes up with hundreds and hundreds of pages of rules. But I feel like accountants are pretty smart and they're always going to figure out ways to get around the rules if they want to, right? And that's what we have with Gap these days is we have rules and rules and rules and rules, more rules than ever, but people still manage to manipulate earnings. That's just my uh, my feeling. I'm curious too yeah, I, about like, yeah. like with I, I want to hear your thoughts, but also with lease accounting. I mean, because that's what you focus on, right? Trulian focuses on lease accounting and that's the big thing everyone's worried about right now. Does it actually make, are investors asking for this? Do, do they care whether or not the leases are on the balance sheet or not? I know we have to do it. We have to comply. This is the, the law as handed down by FASB and it's the rules according to GAP. But like, does anyone care other than the people who make the rules? Uh, it's a big question because I'm not an investor. I'll have to speak my best on behalf. There's a Seeking Alpha article, you know, now Seeking Alpha Kit is a, is a syndicated publication, but one of the popular writers wrote, the only purpose of the new lease accounting standard is to create more works for accountants. You know, it was, a, it was a cynical title, but he had some truth to it. And he walked through the public balance sheets and basically showed how the whole thing was cosmetic, meaning everyone was shifting their leases onto the balance sheet, but effectively the, the stock price didn't change mainly because like you said, investors are smart and they, they know that if Southwest airlines doesn't have any planes on the books, that doesn't mean they don't have any planes. So there's a footnote or a, a 
you know, disclosure around their liability. Right. And it was always previously in the footnotes. All these leases were in the footnotes somewhere in the financial statements. Now it's just where they're on the balance sheet. I guess it changes the balance sheet in that now there's this asset and this liability, but those net out, right? So the net effect is is nil. I mean, like, yeah. And what if they have like uh, provisions to get out of these leases? Does that not count? They still have to put it on the balance sheet, even if they've got like a cancellation clause or something. I don't know. It just seems. No, these are these are good questions. Like, okay, so to be clear, before there was a five year maturity analysis that was required and really just showed your kind of forecasted cash flows for lease payments over the next five years. If you had a lease that renewed every year, I'm sure you could choose to put in the the second year's cash and third and fourth or not, right? There wasn't that much rules around it. So now you're taking the lifetime of the lease, which could be seven years or nine years or two years. You're considering cancellation and renewal options. And then you're doing what's called a reasonable certainty exercise around whether you do or do not think you're going to exercise those options. Now, can I tell you the difference in an investor's perspective between, you know, what it was in the previous standards where you just had this five-year cash flow versus the new standard? I, I can't. I can tell you there's a difference, right? I can tell you there's a significant difference. I can surmise that in the public markets, because there's more scrutiny and a little bit more data available, there's very few public investors that will be caught by surprise. Like they know what they're dealing with and a retailer and an airline, they have an idea of what the lease obligation is. And you know, like a good old corporate or tech company, they might not have really cared what the expense size, you know, what that, what that side was in the private markets. It's interesting, right? Cause then, then you get really. Uh, into the the theory of like, do people really care about about Gap? Because now you've got these private companies where it actually could make a difference. Maybe they have a private equity owner or a bank holder, and then EBITDA looks different, or or you know the debt and liabilities look different. And it's like, wait a minute, now I have a different cost of capital or access to you know financing or whatever yeah. it is. So then it could get yeah. interesting. We'll see. Thank you to Trulian for sponsoring this episode. By leveraging the power of AI, accounting teams can get more done quicker. By seamlessly ensuring compliance with relevant accounting standards and automating tasks that used to take hundreds of hours, accountants are freed up to add value and make an impact. Trulian uses modern technology to extract data from source documents and connect it to the audit trail all the way down to the entries. Trulian helps accounting leaders keep up with the pace of business while maintaining the highest accuracy standards. To learn more and to see Trulian in action, visit www.trulian.com. That's T-R-U-L-L-I-O-N.com. So there's a lot of complexity in adapting to the lease accounting standard. And this is where Trulian comes in, the value proposition, I take it, is that my option without software is to go through all these contracts, pull out the information that I need to then do this formula that I've been given by the new standard, and then get that onto the balance sheet with journal entries, et cetera. Trulian uses, let me get the exact phrase here. Two letters. <laughs> AI. So here's the mission statement from your website. We are creating business transparency by using AI and machine learning to power real-time visibility into company financials and form a single source of truth. So I don't know if you have listened to my podcasts in recent years, but I'm a noted critic of artificial intelligence in uh, many software companies because it seems to be, in many cases, a lot of vaporware. And a lot of people behind the scenes are actually doing the work. They call it artificial intelligence, but... There's not really much going on. Although with lease accounting, I can actually see how this could work. So so walk me through it. I scan my PDFs. I, I scan my contracts into your system as PDFs, right? And then how do you help me automate that? How do you automate everything else after that? Okay, so let's let's talk about two value propositions. And believe it or not, Blake, I would probably agree agree with you on most of the AI in the accounting industry and other industries, right? So let's talk about two value propositions. To your, to your initial question, 
yeah, it's like Dropbox. You upload a document, you can upload Excel. So if you have a list of 10 assets, you could upload that as well. And the AI and more specifically NLP and what's called entity recognition will help identify key, uh, financial data within the document. In many cases, it will actually extract and suggest what's the start date and the end date and the, the lease payment. And then in other cases, it's simply tagging what it believes are the important terms for you to look at. And then you can tag, and when I say tag, you get to have this fun exercise where you click on the, the, the PDF and it just sticks it in your accounting workflow. And then it kicks off the workflow itself, which you could think of as a nice uh, form that asks a few questions about the new standard and then moves you through to create uh, journal entries and disclosures. So that's truly in a nutshell, that's the lease accounting workflow. Now, as a side note, we also have a revenue recognition workflow. So we have two workflows and we actually have more. For example, we have an IT agreement workflow for government and GASB customers where you can extract SaaS agreements and IT agreements and move those into uh, a workflow. But, but we'll zoom in on the lease accounting workflow. So there's two like interesting value propositions. Number one, let's call it the AI. Uh, which saves a little bit of time, maybe an hour, two hours a document. But let's be real. If you're a company, even if you've got 15 leases, you're a pretty big size company and you don't, you don't, you know, listen to podcasts and buy uh, software for, to save 30 hours. So you want, you want something really substantial. So the second value proposition I think is really, really interesting. So in our mission statement, we talk about transparency and if you use AI just to use the OCR layer, meaning just to connect the actual PDF with whatever you're doing, then guess what? Your auditor can have fun too. So if I'm a controller and I'm Wait, auditors get to have fun? Auditors get to have yes, fun? Like this is we, revolutionary here. <laughs> no, we, we like, like we get another topic, but like going back to the, the like Intuit and Oracle and I say, these are like some of the most innovative revolutionary software companies in the world. And the use case was accounting and GL and stuff like that. Okay. So let's, let's get to 2.0. So accountants and auditors love data. They're very good. They're actually very tech forward, contrary to popular belief. And with Trulian, if you can embed a PDF into your financial workflow, and then think about it like Spider-Man, like the spider web just kind of, you know, releases onto the document and tags those different touch points on the document then now when it's time to go for audit, your auditor can swim into a like parachute into your work so they can see. see the workflow. And so the audit trail in Trulian is not, you know, Blake logged in today and then he logged out later and he changed two things. The audit trail is like, this is where the contract was. There's a, there's a, a chat feature, which says Blake asked his auditor a question around the incremental borrowing rate. They gave them this guidance, you know, plus X, Y from the yield curve or whatever it was. And then they added that and then produced the journal entries. And then Blake signed off at the end of the day. So that's the second and bigger value proposition is you're creating transparency and the, the word around real time, like, lets you think about a world where auditors aren't just, you know, pulling all nighters and what are we, March, April? Yeah. It's a good time to talk about it, right? It it's is, a yeah. time where you could be a real time extension of your clients. So you used two acronyms I want to define for our audience. The first was OCR. What is OCR? Optical character recognition. It's basically image recognition. It can be anything like how your car beautifully detects whether there's a lane to the left or right these days, or if there's someone behind you, they're using some level of image recognition. And then and applied to documents, they're taking a document and converting it from an image to a text-based, readable, queryable uh, item. So the OCR takes that image of the of the scan and and turns that into text. And then NLP, what does NLP do? So I've heard neurolinguistic or natural language processing, but basically it's taking now you're in text format because you did the OCR, and the NLP is helping identify what is a date and what is a financial? And then the more sophisticated your NLP is, it can say what's a start date and what's an end date. 
and what's the lease payment and what's the tenant improvement and what's the, you know, ARR versus the MRR and all those types of things. So that's finding all the data points that I need for this workflow that then you kick off and I can select, it sounds like I can select data points that it didn't identify, add those in, go through the workflow to create this entry. And I assume a schedule that accompanies it for all the following months. But what one thing you said was really interesting. I hadn't heard this before is the idea that that now I can, or my auditor can go back and drill down into the original document from the journal entry or in, in the software, they can actually go, like you've linked the document now, the contract to that lease accounting entry. I'll tell you a story. One of our first customers was actually a European customer. They found us on LinkedIn. They had about 30 leases, actually in different countries. It's kind of a cool, cool client. And all of a sudden, one day, they, let's, let's say they were an SAP customer, okay? It was a little bit of a bigger client. And then one day, we got an alert that someone logged into their database that wasn't from their company. They were actually from PwC. And we were like, uh, guys, someone non-authorized logged into your database. And they said, no, that's our auditor. And so instead of pushing their journal entries to their ERP, such as SAP, they had, because we have the journal entries and the disclosures, they had the auditor go directly into our system. Now, at the time, we had a lot of audit firms requesting access to our software, not the PwCs of the world who tend to do things internally, but the, basically the other 396 of the top 400 firms, right? From CBIS MHM to your, you know, regional Oregon uh, accountant. And those uh, firms have since actually procured our software to distribute it to their clients. And there's like mid-market clients on Sage and Microsoft Dynamics and even QuickBooks as well to do this nice little dance with their clients where their clients can upload the data to Trulian. They can audit it uh, directly out of Trulian. So did you make this NLP algorithm? Did you build this AI yourself or do you license it? I imagine there aren't that many people who can create this sort of thing. They must be in high demand. The engineers who build it, Where, you know, how did, how did you get that talent on your team? Well, uh, I've got a partner, Amir Boldo, our CTO co-founder, you know, we're a U.S. company. I grew up founded in, in New York, but we've got a great team in Tel Aviv, actually. So we said from the beginning, uh, we would build a global company that could service both Gap and IFRS customers. So we sit both in the U.S. and in Tel Aviv. And then Amir's got a, a team of engineers, including uh, a couple uh, machine learning leaders. You can read our blog on Truly, and we talk about some of our methodologies. They're in high demand. Again, Blake, it's, it's interesting. If you would have asked me at the beginning, I would have said, yeah, AI is everything, you know, and this is going to be an AI company. But AI has just become a component of what we do. It, it's not like this magic wand that extracts everything and, and makes it perfect for you. It's kind of just become this embedded component where, okay, it gets you 70 or 80% of the key terms. And you have this nice little workflow where you can pick which ones you want to tag into it. And so all that does is it gives you an extra tool. But at the end of the day, an accounting workflow is an accounting workflow. It, it, it will look and feel the same as anything else. It'll just have some nice um, extensions to the unstructured data and some of the conversations that happen between accounts and auditors. So AI isn't everything. A lot of it is the workflow. I discovered that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm an outsider. I, I started my career as a bookkeeper, right? Working my way up from the bottom. I guess this, this is where my skepticism about AI comes from, because that's where a lot of the promise of AI has been put in the last few years is we're going to automate bookkeeping and nobody's going to have to enter transactions into the GL anymore. And of course, you can automate maybe 80 or 90% of it, right? But then there's always the exceptions. And that's what requires the human intervention. So you might not need an army of bookkeepers, but you might need some really skilled systems people watching all the transactions go through, cleaning them up when they don't work, right? So speaking more broadly, where do you think artificial intelligence is taking us as an accounting and finance profession? Where are we, where are we going to end up? I mean, a lot has happened in the last 10 years. Oh, wow. It's a big question. Let's do some numbers. That's more fun, you know? Okay. Like... Let's look at it as a, a macro equation. First of all, we talk about the three pillars of financial reporting, which the first pillar is the tens of billions that CFOs spend every year on their controllers and reporting leaders and 
you know, basically the people who are putting everything together, RevRec, like at Flowcast. The second pillar is those ERPs, the systems of record. Let's say they're spending tens of billions a year on everything from QuickBooks to Oracle. And then the third pillar is the money that you pay for audit and consulting, right? So over 200 billion, uh, a lot of it is, is in the big four. So the question is, how does that dynamic change? Let's take the big four or the, the auditor, for example. So you've got 200 billion a year that's spent there. That's not going to like go to robots in the next 10 years, but let's say there's 20% of that that's automatable. Now, if you can just give the software tomorrow that automates everything, that's not powerful enough because there needs to be a more compelling value proposition because believe it or not, auditors do a great job. That's why they are where they are. And they've been like that, you know, they've, they've dominated for decades, especially within the big four. So you need to have a two or three X value proposition. And that's where AI can come in because right now you're sampling, right? You're taking one or three of a thousand transactions and recreating the work that's done. And you've got on the other end fraud, right? Whether it's a wire card or Clarion, you know, a few, a couple months ago. So we all know in theory, if you can move from sampling to full coverage, that you could create a more compelling value proposition. So I, I believe that AI becomes part of the equalizer, obviously just good old workflow software is very important, but what AI can do in our case is it just connects the unstructured data, right? Like it just connects you to documents and invoices. You know, I, as a founder still get audited from our investors and like, they're asking me for the emails and the balance confirmations. And I'm like trying to run a company and they're asking me for like, then they're giving me a word document and I'm filling it out and this is a big for auditor. So if you can start to connect some of that unstructured data, the AI is okay. The AI gets you 70, 80, 90%, but it connects it within the workflow. So then going back to our equation, the $200 billion a year that we spend 10 to 20% of it, let's say shifts into technology. There was a hope that the audit firms could lead that revolution. I'll let you and the listeners decide how that's going. But it's starting to look more and more like the audit firms are getting comfortable partnering with leading providers like Flowcast, like, you know, Trulian. And that percentage shifts into software. AI is a, a dominant component of it. And then we get much more accuracy and transparency and efficiency as a result. So that's, that's kind of the macro way we look at it. What about all these other, you know, changes in standards? Everyone's talking about ESG, or at least I hear that all the time from the, the thought leaders in our profession. There seems to be a lot of interest in it, actual interest from the public in accounting standards for once with, what does it stand for? Environmental, sustainability, governance. And the SEC just came out with some draft ideas about climate change disclosures that companies may have to add in. I mean, this sounds like a huge opportunity for Trulian given there's all this unstructured data in documents, places about, you know, environmental stuff. Is that where you're headed next? Are you, am I going to be dumping in all of my climate change documentation to Trulian and then you guys will help, you know, find all that information about our carbon footprint and whatnot? Oh man, it, this is a loaded, this is a loaded topic. You know, look, I had a, you know, I had a sister worked at Google and she got an offer from a drone company. This is five, 10 years ago, she left for that drone company because drone was going to be the next big, best thing, but drones didn't become a big thing. So ESG is, is regulated. So it's definitely here to stay. The question is, is do you make a big capital expenditure on software to try to address a, a sort of a standard or movement that isn't really crystallized? So standards and lease accounting and rhetoric, it's going into effect in 2021 and it's going into effect in 2023. And here's the white paper that says how, and here's all the position papers. And like, this is pretty much out there. ESG is a beast. You have these, these tidal waves of sort of corporate responsibility combined with climate change that are really coming on strong. And we all know that we should do something, but I don't know if ESG is Number one, is it clearly defined? And number two, does the public agree that there's sort of this cost benefit analysis agreed upon for ESG? Does that make sense? So, so you're saying it's, it's very undefined at the moment. Yeah. And, and the public isn't clear on what it actually wants. Also CFOs. Yeah, right? CFOs. Yeah. So I'll give yes. you an example. Okay. You, uh, uh, some, well, first of all, let's go back to the unstructured data, right? 
it is a very, very difficult equation to collect like all of the data from around a company and try to like understand whether they're in compliance with ESG. Okay. Like think about another big regulations like GDPR. Well, you can actually do big data dumps and e-discovery analysis on across different documents because there's some well-defined areas of what does it mean to be in violation of data privacy. Like ESG, okay, you could talk about a supply chain company, right? Or I'll give you an example. I, I forgot the analysis, but they did like an ESG score and there was a cohort of companies that had the top ESG score. Actually, Francine McKenna, if you know, did a good analysis mm -hmm. on this. And weirdly, they were also all doing business in Russia. They hadn't like unwound their Russia footprint. So it's like, what is ESG? Is it like being environmentally sustainable? Is it not being friends with, you know, Putin? Like there's a, there's a, a wide range of things that right. the outcomes that you go. And then also the fact that if you start to push harder on like energy, energy companies, which are going to be presumably some of the biggest violators of ESG, right? That's the E, you know, how does that really impact the world? Like, how does it really impact the world in countries where commodity prices impact the, the majority of the population, right? And could create more unrest or more instability. It sounds great where we're sitting in, you know, America, but, uh, those are kind of my general thoughts. It'll happen anyway. <laughs> Well, it may take a while, right? I mean, these previous standards took how long to develop? Revenue recognition was in the works for, it feels like a decade? Oh, yeah. FASB, oh, yeah. FASB IFRS, it, it, it all moves very slow. But those are so much more clear, Blake. Like, yeah. those are, to your point, like, can truly get to the unstructured data. Well, hey, we're dealing with documents, you know, which are, and we're just trying to pull out a dozen terms that are pretty well-defined, start date, end date, amortization. And guess what? Yeah, you have to figure out the incremental borrowing rate, but it's got one digit and a percentage next to it. ESG is like, it's like a huge black box compared to that. Think about all the different analyses that you have to do across a business from internal to, uh, I don't know, international relations to supply chain to data guess store, everything. The thing that's not clear in my mind is like, let's say you just want to come up with one metric like carbon footprint. How do you even define across companies a score for carbon footprint? There's a lot of data you have to collect to figure that out in a lot of different ways that people estimate it. You know, what is, what is your personal carbon footprint, Isaac? How do you even, how would you even calculate that? Is it based on like how many, how many miles you travel in a car and how many flights you take and how many products you consume? And then you have to trace back the carbon footprint of all those different products to be made. Yeah, and, totally. Totally. I don't know. Am I, am I giving money to organizations that offset that? And, you know, am I, I, you know, am I, am I ordering food delivery, which someone has to drive to me or am I driving to go like all these types of things? I think it's impossible. Look, here's Blake, here's what, what concerns me about ESG and going back to my Texas days and, and Enron, you know, Enron ended up turning into a a good thing for business. It was good for business for the accounting world, right? We got socks out of it. You've got another uh, company not too far from Flowcast in audit board, which has built a fantastic mm -hmm. software company around, you know, internal audit and compliance. And these regulations created a lot more work for the industry. Okay. Um, but we're sitting here, you know, over 20 years later with similar issues around fraud, right? We're talking about Wirecard in, in 2022 and, and, and many of these other situations, and there could be more lurking, right? So I, my hope is that whether it's the SEC or it ends up being, you know, FASB, big four, whatever it is, I hope they don't overextend themselves too much, right? Because there's a lot of fatigue here. There's a lot of fatigue with these standards. There's a lot of fatigue with Corona. There's evolving business models. We're stepping out of a bull market into a potentially scary time. And this could really start to rattle people and erode some of the trust that you get out of, you know, accounting in the big four. Yeah. Well, you say trust. I'm not sure that the public has much trust in auditors these days. You brought up those cases, Wirecard in Germany and Carillion in the UK is another example of, I mean, these are big companies and you feel like if the auditors had really been 
looking out for the public, they would have found this. They would have seen it happening. I mean, in in the case of Wirecard, I think it was EY, right? EY, EY. didn't even do confirmations of bank balances. That's like it basic was, audit 101. What were they doing like, if they weren't auditing the bank balances of Wirecard? You know, billions and billions of dollars. So, you know, I sit here as a uh, non-Big Four accountant. The biggest firm I ever worked for was 1,000 people, 100 partners, 1,000 staff, which is still a pretty big firm, right? Top 25, but not serving global Fortune 500 companies, that sort of thing. And so I just sit here as a CPA and I look at accounting standards and I think, I look at the auditors and I think, what, what are they doing? It's a $200 billion industry and how does it protect the public if it can't stop this kind of stuff, right? And then and the, the slap on the hands that they get from the regulators is just a, a couple million dollars to KPMG is nothing. So I, I don't know. Oh man. Well, but, let, me, let me throw out a few like potentially exciting, but scary, but still theoretical ideas of where things go, right? So, so first of all, Wirecard was a $2 billion cash asset that was fraudulent, okay? And my friend's grandmother had that in her pension. She didn't even know it. That was one of the main stocks, right? So it just, it just wiped out. So it really does impact, you know, from the top yeah. to, to the average person. So it's a big deal. All of my friends, a lot of my friends work at the big four, have worked at the big four, and everyone in earnest wants a more transparent and trustworthy ecosystem and is doing their best job. But in that case, you know, the, the gap between what's needed to be done and what the methodologies are of audit are just too wide. And so there's no, there's no equalizer, right? It's almost like you can't get out of your own way. So back to trust, I think we're at a very, very low trust point. I think it's going to get worse. I think we're, you know, unfortunately, like you and I know about Wirecard and a lot of our friends, but I don't think it hits mainstream the way it should. Like it's a big deal. Um, yeah, yeah. And so when when trust erodes and you've got this world where like accounting is seen as a reactive sort of post tr- everything reconciliation exercise to check the box. And then you've got like private markets where there's a lot of money in venture capital and private companies and you see big companies going private, right? And then being taken private. You're essentially like with these companies how do I say it? The, the stakeholders can become the private investors. And if right. the private investors don't think there's trust, they need trust and they have a lot at stake. And if the people are confident in the rules, then that's going to give other people opportunity to create the rules. Think of it that way, yeah. right? Yeah, so to me, the, the, this trend of companies staying private, of avoiding going public, it's not just because they want to avoid the red tape of an IPO or being a public company. It's that they also don't see the value in being a public company because there's all this yeah. red tape, but there's not a lot of value for technology companies. I would argue there's not a lot of value in gap financial statements. And the reason is that we're dicking around putting all these leases on the balance sheet, but 90% of S&P 500 market value is intangible. And right. Gap hasn't adapted to handle intangible assets in 100 years. It's essentially the same. Gap is essentially the same as it was 100 years ago when General Motors was <laughs> running the economy, right? And we, we are no longer an industrial economy. And so I wonder, like, who are these people who make these rules? And how, how uh, I don't know, blind are they to the fact that most of the value, I mean, think about this. It kind of blows my mind. Most of the value, 90% of the value in the S&P 500, 500 biggest companies in our economy, it's not on the balance sheet. Right. So, so why would we value audit when what they're auditing is only 10% of what we care about? And that's to me why audit fees have stagnated over the years, why auditors aren't making more money, why they're not, you know, audit first year staff salaries have stagnated because if you can't raise the fees because there's not value, then you can't raise salaries and maintain partner compensation the way it was, right? So I think, right. you know, we've, we've, I don't know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, it's a, it's a perfect storm. It's a little scary because we spent the first part of the, the discussion talking about new standards 
We talked a little bit about evolving business models and some of the complexities. And if we're all in agreement that you can't pay more to your auditor, meaning we're not seeing the value, then you're stuck. So going back to the lease accounting equation, that's why we like Trulian, because we're working with these private audit firms and they're like, hey, we're good people and we want to follow the rules, but we just can't keep up. Oh, and by the way, we can't hire. And oh, by the way, the number of CPA, people taking the CPA exam is down, right? right? Right. And we can't keep up. So, so in some way, we're maintaining accuracy, at least for one standard and, and one moment of time. But I don't, look, I don't, I don't know what happens. I think, again, I think well, people, rulemakers and auditors are all in earnest, but these things are like, they're big macro equations. And right. usually when the gap is so wide between what is expected and what's available in a dominant area of the market, that's when technology becomes an equalizer. I mean, you could, you could even, it's not a stretch to think of an Uber analogy, right? With accounting, where if you have technology platforms that just start moving faster and faster and become better and more trusted, and then you have private investors who are confident in those platforms, you know, kind of like, I think of Carta, which is a company that helped with cap table management and then moved into giving people confidence in 409A evaluations, right? Right, right, right. Um, those, like that's the way it can go. And it's really, it is really scary because then once rules, like we're talking about rules here and trust. So if all the private investors to your software point don't care about gap and they only care about ARR and LTV and like, you know, Bessemer is a whole paper about the 42 metrics they care about and none of them is revenue. None of them is part of gap. Yeah. 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 Uh. <laughs> then, then. You know, that was there, shocking to me. When I joined a technology yeah. company as a CPA, I go from public accounting into tech, spent four years working for different technology companies. Not once did we ever talk about the financials. It was irrelevant to our business, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, well, that's a, I, I think that's a commentary also on the venture world and like just the idea of, of top line or nothing, right? I, ho I hope uh, profitability comes back in fashion. Well, but, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, like so... A technology company, I've learned, this is what I've learned over the last few years. To put it very simply, most subscription businesses, what you are building is an annuity. Your customer base, you have a cost to acquire customers, you try to keep that low enough, you acquire the customers, and then they pay you every month, every year, as long as you deliver the service. That is the intangible asset of a subscription business. That's the primary asset of a subscription business is the subscribers, and that is nowhere on the balance sheet. And so you get this mismatch, even though you have revenue recognition, right? you get this mismatch of income and expense because all my sales and marketing expense is expensed in the period in which it is incurred, but it's to build this intangible asset. So, so that's why software companies look terrible on a gap basis because they're spending all the money up front for a deferred stream of revenue downstream, right? And, and gap could adapt to figure this out. And we have done this, right? The, the, that's why we focus on metrics like cost to acquire a customer, lifetime value, cost per lead, all, the, all, the, all these SaaS metrics that we pay attention to, because they allow us to understand what's happening in a way that accrual basis gap financials do not. Right. And, well, and I just, yeah. the accounting standard setters like must be completely oblivious to all this. I mean, I was I, as a CPA. Before. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 it's weird. It's like denial probably. That's probably what it's like. You get to, you, you want to tackle it first and maybe revenue recognition was the first step towards tackling that especially in larger enterprise software arrangements, but then it gets to a point where it's just moving faster than you. And so you're just kind of waving uh, yeah. from behind. Well, like, it doesn't hey, good luck with that. Yeah. I mean, I guess it sort of like, it doesn't matter if we're recognizing the revenue more consistently when all of our expenses are up front, because we're not matching income and expense. And if you think about it, the job of an accountant is the balance sheet. That is why we exist. Otherwise we only need bookkeepers. Anyone right. can do a PL, right? But it's deciding what gets deferred and what, you know, what gets put on the balance sheet, what gets capitalized, when it gets expensed. That's, that's how we get to profit. And that's our right. job as accountants is to come up with a profit number that makes sense. And for, I mean, this is, this is what we failed at doing for the last few decades. Like Amazon looked terrible until recently because Gap didn't understand how Amazon's business worked. Like Gap's great for a business that makes widgets or sells inventory, right. right? But not for a business that sells some sort of intangible asset like Facebook, right? To no, totally. 
and 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 so look i think there's there's a lot of things in play i mean first of all if you look at revenue multiples in software and technology it's a little crazy if we and i'm not even talking about the private markets which is crazier it's a little nutty if you think about it that it's like you know it used to be that things would trade at three four or five times revenue multiple you know and that was the discussion and then all of a sudden it's like 20x one day and 40x the other day so you know volatility is scary to me that's something where there's some red flag in what's going on it may be a bigger macro factor but i look there's still a lot of private investors that hold stock in the SaaS companies that go public and there's a lot of look our one of our investors is third point third point's a hedge fund okay and now they're they're mm-hmm. they're co-leading mm-hmm. a series a right and you look at tiger global and insight partners you know uh, providence these late stage private equity firms and hedge funds hedge funds that are going into a public private arbitrage so I'm not putting this all in gap. I'm just saying these people feel pretty confident in the metrics and the data. And if they're sitting on the board of a series D company, that's going to be IPOing in a couple of years, they know the economics of monday.com better than any investor because they have, you know, marketing acquisition data or whatever the hell it is. Right. There's, there's all this data that is inside the company that does not get disclosed to public investors because it's not required by gap. And which is a big issue. It's a, it's a it gives the insiders way more of an advantage. And it's like, I mean, isn't that the whole point of public accounting standards is to, to, to give public investors the information they need to make decisions. Yeah, totally. And, Look, and, I think yeah. one of the themes, so I talked a lot about this with Artie Minson. Artie was a, an EY auditor for many years. He became CFO vice chair at AOL Time Order. And then he was, you know, basically CFO and the president at WeWork which had their own story about uh, community-adjusted EBITDA and, and sort of uh, financial reporting. But best best Artie, non-GAAP metric of all time. Yeah, WeWork's I, I community-adjusted EBITDA. Yeah, yeah. Artie, will, he, won't, he won't let me in on that. But what he, t- what he will, what he has told me is someone who started his career as a CPA and became this high-powered CFO is that it used to be like the CPAs and the accountants were the cool, smart guys in the room, like when he started. And... And now it's seen as a tax on the business. And so if you're a CFO now, you're like you're building this legion around FP&A and finance, and then you're also building this accounting team. And it's like one gives you the data that you need and what's called strategic. Like how many times have you seen a title of someone like strategic finance? Like we have someone in our company, Trillion, he's the strategic finance lead. You've never seen strategic accounting manager, okay? And so- <laughs> That's true. That's yeah. right. And so now you're, you're paying twice. You're paying for the data you want that's strategic, quote unquote. Right. And then you're paying for the accounting, which you have to do. And it's really unfortunate because yeah. if the fundamental data, i.e. the system of record, was based around the accounting, meaning you could just kind of get compliant on the way to getting the data you want, that would be so much more efficient. But now you're managing everything in, in external systems. The, the CPA, at the end of the day, like they're not going anywhere, right? We're not right. Well, so, the problem we have is that we have all of these standards. They don't actually increase value to the market, but they still have to be dealt with. So it's basically just creating more work without enabling us to sell more, right? So, so we right. have to become more efficient, and this is where solutions like Trulian make a lot of sense because if I'm an accounting firm and I have clients, or I'm internal and I need to get this work done, it doesn't make sense to hire bodies to do it anymore. There's no, like, right? Like dead end. So, so this is like, this brings us to the great resignation, right? The, 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 I mean, this is why I'm very bullish, even though I'm critical of, of gap, I'm very bullish on all the solutions that help us deal with gap because we just don't have the bodies to deal with it anymore. Everyone I talk to, they've lost in public accounting anyway, they're losing people in busy season, which never used to happen before. People used to wait until the end of busy season to give their notice. Now they're just, sorry, guys, I'm out. <laughs> Have a good it's march. Like jumping off the ship. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, uh, and, and, and giant giant salary increases to go to other places. It's tough. It's tough. And, and you know, you, you do see the publicity around the big four, you know, KPMG, for example, uh, publicizing those salary increases and bonuses and things like that. And like, that's not going to fundamentally change how accounting is done. In fact, if anything, that might create a culture of certain types of people who 
are happy to get a bonus to stick around, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And so the real, the real warriors in accounting are the people that believe in the profession and believe in transparency. And I, I don't want to use the policeman analogy, but people that want to kind of do good, right? And, and, mm-hmm. and protect what's there. It'll be interesting with the great resignation. I think that people in their firms, they have to be champions. And a, a, a soft, a, an audit firm, even a small, even a small firm or like a bookkeeper might look at a SaaS expense and feel like that's more than I do today. Or maybe that's only a 20% reduction, or maybe that's not even a reduction, but it's pretty close. And you almost have to be a warrior and be like, this is the right thing to do. My, my, my next client is going to care that I send him to a nice portal or that I can give him a report cleanly. If I want to scale, if I want to be modern, I need to associate myself with this. And maybe, maybe there's a risk to me, but in the long run, this is going to be like part of my job and I'm just going to be a better accountant because of this. So that's where we're going. You nailed it there with like the, the better portal, right? The, The client experience is becoming more and more important because it's, it's possible to deliver a really good experience over the internet now. Like, you and I, we're recording this podcast from, are, you're, are you in Texas or New York? I don't even know so right now. So right now I'm in Tel Aviv. I'm in our you're Tel Aviv. You're in Tel Aviv. Office. That's incredible. By the way, right? can they, is this voice only? Because I'm looking at Blake right now. This is cool. You got your office. I'm in, it's a think big in the background. Can they see that? Uh, it depends. If you're on YouTube, yes. If you're listening to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, no. But yeah, you've got a think. big sign behind you, think big. I love that. Yeah, I think... I think like what you what you're saying, if I understand it, is that we as accountants need to think bigger when it comes to how we use software, why we put it in place. Because it used to be just an ROI calculation. I'm going to save X hours by purchasing this application, but the better reason to do it is because I'm creating a better experience for my staff, which will keep them around. They're not going to leave, and for my customers. the The ROI is important on the hours, but not as important as it used to be. And I guess I say that because like, I would never go work for a company where I have to do everything manually in Excel. Like, I, And most, I think most people wouldn't want to do that anymore. Most accountants right. would, they would, I'd even rather sacrifice salary to work at a place where I don't have to do that manual soul crushing type of uh, data entry. <laughs> Sounds I mean, emotional. it really, it really is. I mean, look, I, you know, I, like I said, I came from the very bottom as a bookkeeper doing data entry into desktop accounting software. And I've personally experienced the change from what that was like to automating 80% of my own job and building a business around it. And so it just shocks me when I still see people working in accounting departments where it's, I mean, we were getting paper ledgers five years ago when I was in public accounting still in, in, in Los Angeles, we'd get them mailed to us. It only happened once or twice, but still like just that, that even is out there indicates that there's a big segment of the accounting profession that's still doing things with 10 keys and paper ledgers. And yeah, uh, totally. so there's a lot, Look, lot, lot of opportunity. Yeah, a lot of opportunity. And Blake, it's, it's not as scary as I think people worry or make it out to be. If there's still people out there that are skeptics, the world has established that there is a lot of incentive and interest of a financial reporting ecosystem. Hundreds of billions are spent every year in a combination of internal, external accountants, and then also systems. And that money will still be invested. Some of the right. economics will be shifted, but the, nobody's, nobody's going away. And in fact, if people, I, I, know, I know this, like if you have fraud, right? If you have inefficiencies, that means there's something to be gained. That means that people might even spend a little bit more to eliminate that fraud or whatever it is. So that means that you can actually make the market bigger right? Go look at other examples. I mean, you're in, you're in podcasting, go look at examples of media publishers and music, how things move to, to Spotify and actually it ended up being more revenue for the labels and stuff like that. Like this could, there's a lot of data here. People yeah. care about this a lot. Like let's have a party. Let's make this market bigger with technology. I like your analogy about Spotify, but as somebody who came from the music world, I was a musician before I got into accounting. I will tell you there was a 10 year at least a 10-year period where nobody was making any money except Spotify. Good. Good. The the, (laughs) the glory days. The glory days. Well, Isaac, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, If our listeners want to learn about you and what you're up to, 
where's the best place for them to go? Uh, Trulian, www.trulian, T-R-U-L-L-I-O-N.com. Trulian is truth in millions. It's, uh, it means something to us. I like that. Um, it's, it's, it's a piece of technology, but it's also a mission, right? What good, what, what good is saying a million or a billion or a unicorn if that's not backed up by, by real uh, credible financial data? Um, I'm out there on LinkedIn, right? We've got a great team. And look us up, hit us up. Uh, you know, we're always happy to chat. Thanks, Isaac. Great talking to you. Okay. Thanks, Blake. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something new. And if you did, wouldn't it be nice to get some CPE credit for it? Well, I've got great news. My new app, Earmark CPE, offers free NASPA-approved CPE credits for listening to podcasts, including this one. Visit earmarkcpe.com to download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. That's earmarkcpe.com.